It's been a while since I did a, a toma. Yeah, travel, talking out my ass, not rant, ranting out my ass. Uh, I'm in Barcelona. I'm, I'm sort of uh, at the nexus of memories here. I'm in our flat in Barcelona, which we purchased in 2003. It's the only place I've ever owned, and I don't really even own this. It's in Casilda's name. Um, but yeah, we're, we went in on it together and we fixed it all up with our friends, Viram and Matt and Senor Reis, who, uh, came down here. This is sort of a strange story. Uh, we bought the place and I'd budgeted about 30,000 euros to hire someone to do a renovation. But what I didn't understand was that in Spain, when you buy a place, you pay all the taxes at the purchase. You don't have high property taxes every year like in the States. Uh, so the 30,000 euros that I had budgeted for renovation were reduced to about 8,000 euros very quickly um, by the time we walked out of the lawyer's office, in fact. So the place that we had bought, which had been abandoned for five or six years, uh, was you'd broken up into three tiny little dark bedrooms, was just fucking disgusting. And our plan from the beginning was just to gut it and totally renovate it because it's an attico. It's a penthouse with a nice big terrace. It's about uh, 60 square meters in the apartment and 40 square meters outside. So it's like half, almost half outside. It's really beautiful location, really cool neighborhood right near Montjuic, for those of you who know Barcelona. Um, you know, location, 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 right? So we got the location and we got uh, a space that's beautiful, but we got a really piece of shit apartment um so essentially i was resigned to the idea that we would hang plastic um in half the apartment and destroy the half we weren't sleeping in and just sort of deal with the dust and try to keep it under control and uh, and I'd work on that half until we could move into that half, and then I'd destroy the other half. Um, and when I say destroy, I mean knock down all the walls, rip out the false ceiling, um, gut it. And uh, so it's like, you know, when you see those sort of war scenes where a bomb goes off, that's what it was going to look like. The exterior walls would remain, everything else would be just smashed with sledgehammers um anyway so around that time uh things were happening we we were renting uh, another place and the owner wanted to move back in and she was trying to force us out and playing this game about how it, uh, she was getting divorced and that was that fell under an act of god in the contract so we had to leave and at that point, a friend of ours introduced us to an old friend of hers named Octavi, who is a lawyer here in Barcelona. And Octavi's mother uh, had spent a year in Texas, I think, as a um, high school student, and people treated her really well. And I guess because of that, and also just because he's a really nice guy, Octavi decided that he was... Um, going to be our 
protector here in Barcelona. And so he went after this woman and ended up getting us about $15,000 to leave when we wanted to. And so that was really nice. Suddenly we had some more money. And we so we looked for a place to move out of before we could move into the place that at that point we were looking to purchase. And another friend of ours who's a musician said, I, I have a buddy who's going down to Andalusia to study guitar. I think he's going to leave his apartment up here. So we met his buddy and his buddy was like, yeah, I've got this apartment. Um, I don't want to make any money. I just want someone I trust to be there and deal with shit and your friends of friends. And so we went and looked at his apartment. It's this massive, like a loft, a, a sort of an industrial place, just huge huge place and uh totally furnished fantastic right in plaza universidad uh so and very cheap so we moved in there and we lived like back in one little corner of this huge warehouse space and the purchase of our place where i'm sitting right now went through and I realized that I didn't have any fucking money. And so I was sort of like, oh, fuck. Anyway, um, around that time, we had been in traveling in Asia the year previously in 2003. And the first half of 2004, we were in Asia. Um, and we met some really great people there. One of them was a guy named Matt, a German dude from Berlin. We met him in Laos. And... Uh, Anyway, around that time, I got an email from Matt. Um, he had been studying massage in Chiang Mai, and uh, we met him in uh, Luang Prabang, I think, and um, became friends with him there. And anyway, his plan was to finish his certificate in Thai massage, and then he was going to move to England with his girlfriend, uh, who was a massage therapist, and she was working in some center where, like, you know, rich people went and movie stars. And so he was going to move there with her and, you know, be this kind of hippie massage therapist dude. And uh, he was super in love and happy. And so when we left him in Thailand, um, that was that was his future. Anyway, around this time, uh, so now we're talking about the winter. It was must have been we bought the place in November so it was you know December January I got an email from him saying that his girlfriend had died in a motorcycle accident and so he was in Berlin and he was super depressed obviously and living at his parents house and he didn't know what he was going to do and Anyway, so I just said, hey, dude, why don't you come to Barcelona? It's warmer down here. At least there's no fucking snow. Uh, we've got this huge apartment. You can stay here and just, you know, chill or travel around Spain or do whatever you want. You don't have to pay any rent. Just come on down. Get the fuck out. And so he did. And around the same time, I got an email from another dude that we had met in India named Viram. Uh, if you are a long-term listener of this podcast, you will have heard two episodes that I recorded with Viram when I saw him a year or two ago, a year and a half ago, maybe. Um, anyway, at that point, we we had met Viram in Goa, and he had a girlfriend, a Catalan girlfriend. And Viram is a dude, for those of you who hadn't 
haven't listened to those episodes. Viram is Italian, and he spent about 20 years of his life based in India. He is one of the most well-traveled, uh, spiritually enlightened people I've ever met. Uh, he's he's a true hunter-gatherer, true paleo-modern, that guy. Anyway, Viram made a big mistake because he fell in love with this very beautiful Catalan girl whose name I don't remember. And uh, that's where Cassie and she were in uh, belly dancing class together, actually. I think that's how we got to know them. And anyway, she was beautiful, but I think Viram was blinded by her beauty and didn't notice that. Yeah, she wasn't all that, you know. But he left India and moved to a, a town in the suburbs of Barcelona. Uh, I think it was uh, Sabade, for those of you who are familiar with the area. Uh, not the kind of place you want to move to after you've been living in India for 20 years especially not with a small town girl and all her small town friends. And, you know, it's just, come on, no, ain't going to work ever. So anyway, around this point, Viram had been there about a month and he was like, what the fuck have I done? Oh, my God. So I heard from him and same thing, like, dude, why don't you just come to Barcelona? At least it's a big city and, you know, travel, do whatever. You don't have to pay rent. Uh, just get out of that fucking situation you're in so then Viram came and uh, the two of them decided they were going to help me renovate the apartment Matt was like me he didn't know anything but he was willing and Viram is knows how to do everything he's an artist the dude everything he touches is beautiful um, and he knows a lot about construction he knows how to build things he knows how to wire things and all that but he is an artist, so he's not somebody who's in a hurry or, like, wants to be swinging sledgehammers much. He's more of a, you know, take your time and do it perfectly kind of guy. And I explained to them I, that I didn't have any money, of course, to pay them, and there's no obligation. But both of them decided that it would help them – it would help take their minds off their woman problems. And so – they came down. I figured they'd, you know, do it a, a few days or a week and then they'd say, yeah, I'm going to go to yeah, Andalusia or whatever. And that's totally cool. That's what I would have done in their case, you know, lend a hand. Thanks for letting me crash at your place for a while. But, you know, I got shit to do, places to be. I mean, Morocco's right down there. And I mean, they're both travelers. They'd both been around a lot. So um, it would it would be easy for them to go off to Morocco or Senegal or the Canary Islands. There's so many places to go. Anyway, uh, so we started knocking down walls and uh, lugging the bags of of uh, concrete and plaster down to the the street where I rented some containers. And uh, around that time, I was playing poker with my buddy Adam. And Adam uh, is married to a, a woman from Barcelona, and they had an apartment in this neighborhood, which actually is why we wanted the apartment in this neighborhood, because Adam had shown me what a great neighborhood it is. It's kind of unknown among people who have lived in Barcelona a lot. It's sort of a 
sort of a strange little corner that people don't think about much, but it's just a fantastic neighborhood. Anyway, um, I mentioned to him that the three of us were knocking down walls, but I was kind of nervous because I, I don't know what we're doing. We don't have any permits. I don't know. I mean, I think these aren't load-bearing walls, but the whole fucking building could come down on my head. I, just, I have no idea. I'm cutting pipes, and I don't know if they're – I mean, are they gas pipes? I hope it's not a gas pipe. I don't know. Um, so I'm kind of uh, flying blind. And um, Adam says, well, my father-in-law is a paleta, which is like a, a sort of – general contractor sort of like a guy who knows how to do lots of things he's retired he's 70 um, but uh, he's in the neighborhood maybe he'd be willing to come by and just sort of look at what you want to do and I was like fuck yeah that would be great and so he came by his name's Senor Reyes and Manolo and uh, he's about five feet two and as you say he was 70 at the time and uh, this is in 2004 so he's in his 80s now and uh he came by and and i explained i wanted to you know take out the kitchen here and move it over there and i wanted to expand these windows and make them french doors so we could walk out onto the terrace from the living room and the bedroom and i wanted to rip down this wall and make the bathroom bigger so you have a big walk-in shower and get rid of the bathtub and i also wanted to put in an asian toilet which he thought was completely ridiculous but cassie and i had both lived in Asia and we prefer the Asian squat toilet. So we wanted to put that in. And then we wanted to add another little aseo it's called, which is just a bathroom and a sink. Um, and, uh, to the other part. So, you know, there's a normal toilet for guests and whatever. Anyway, so I went through all this and as I'm talking, he was saying, which means you could do that. You could do this. And then at one point he changed to, which means we could do this. And I stopped. And I said, oh, no, you know, excuse me, senor. I says, es que no, no te puedo pagar, no le puedo pagar nada. No, I can't pay you anything. I don't have any money. So I'm not looking to hire you. I was just looking for your expert advice. And he said, no, no, yeah, I understand that. Um, but, uh, you know, I can lend you some tools and because uh, uh, you have your friends. And I said, yeah, yeah. We uh, And I said to him, Tenemos muchos, tenemos tres indios, pero sin jefe. We we have three Indians and no chief. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll uh, I'll lend you some tools and I'll come by every few days and just see see how you're doing. So well, that would be great. So what happened was that we came and every morning he was here before us. The guy showed up at seven o'clock every morning. I ended up giving him keys because I could just couldn't get here at seven o'clock every morning. He's humping sacks of concrete up. He's busting his ass harder than the three of us. Uh, and so over the next three months, the three of us tore this place apart and put it back together. And so every centimeter of this apartment is something that we, the four of us, one of the four of us has touched and looked at and thought about and caressed into its current condition. So it's a funny time for us to be packing up and getting ready to rent the place out long term. Uh, we've rented it to a friend before when we were sort of temporarily on the road, but now we're we're sort of saying goodbye to Barcelona for 
a longer time and uh it feels strange for sure and it's also strange that while this is happening on our personal plane on the greater global political plane there's demonstrations in the street about Catalonia separating from Spain so these there's this energy of separation that's permeating through this moment anyway i said that uh we're at the nexus of oh by the way I, to finish that story at the end of it all matt and viram wouldn't take a dime from us uh the only payment they accepted was pizza and beer and weed which i was growing on the terrace even though we hadn't moved in yet and um and even later when sex of dawn came out and we had some money in the account for the first time ever in my case I contacted Matt in Germany and said, hey, man, what's your give me your account number. I want to send you a few thousand euros. Uh, we've got some money now. We can afford it. And and he wrote back and ignored my request. Same thing with Viram. And uh, Senor Reyes, after having charged lots of the material to his account because he got a discount as a builder, uh, tiles and uh, tubing and, you know, sacks of concrete and plaster and all the stuff that you have to buy, bricks and so on. Um, it took like two or three months. I kept asking his daughter, like, hey, tell your dad I need a bill. I need a bill. I need to pay him. And Oh, yeah, okay. I told him. I don't know. And Finally, very, very reluctantly, he gave us a bill for, I think it was like 2,400 euros, just to shut us up. Anyway, in the midst of packing up all this stuff and going through all these boxes of old papers and photographs and so on, um, I'm connecting to lots of other periods of life. Uh, it's very nostalgic, this whole process. And I found in one of the boxes, I found, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it an essay or I don't know what it is, a memory of an evening in Kenai, Alaska that I decided to write up. I have no idea when I wrote this. It's typed and printed, um, but the papers are yellowed and old. Um so anyway, I thought uh, it might be fun to read this to you, and you'll hear that there's a poem that plays a role in this story. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this the way it's written, and I'm resist the urge to clean it up and change it to the style in which I would be writing it today. Uh, this happened in 1983. Uh, the first year I went to Alaska, the summer of 1983. So I'm just going to read it as it's written, and then I'll play uh, a piece of music, and then I'll read the poem that uh, that I read that night in 1983. 
So anyway, uh, because this happens in Alaska, I'm going to play you out with a piece of music called Alaska. Uh, it's it's sort of a hit. You've probably heard it. It's uh, Maggie Rogers. It's a beautiful song about walking across the tundra and having a cleansing experience. And then uh, when it's when I finish the essay, I'll play a piece uh, by Explosions in the Sky that's called Our Last Days as Children. And then I'll read the poem and then I'll disappear with no advertisements or reminders to give me money if you can afford it or any of that bullshit. So that's it. All right. I hope you enjoy this. This is Maggie Rogers, and the song is called Alaska. I was walking through icy streams that took my breath away. Moving slowly through westward water over glacial plains in a walked off field.
The night Rob and I arrived in Kenai was one of the few nights I remember as actually being dark. Nighttime at that latitude doesn't really happen. It seems like it will, and then it seems like it has. As I remember it, the sky begins changing color at around 11 or so and slides into a long, lazy sunset. From about 2 a.m. until around 4, it's dark enough to see a few strong stars, but it certainly isn't night. Then the sky begins to grow pink again in preparation for a long wind-up into sunrise. In Alaska, the sun is slow. The darkness of that first night sticks in my memory only because I was struck by how bright the fire was that we approached when our last ride dropped us off at the edge of the bluff. It was the brightest fire in a whole field of tents and fires, and we thought it made a logical place to begin looking for Brent. Brent was the kind of guy you would expect to find himself warming at the biggest, brightest fire. He was. As for us, our reputations had preceded us. I had an exaggeration or two to roll with, but on the whole, I'd have to say that Brent had set me up pretty well. I'd been assigned the Dylan-esque status of, quote, rebel intellectual, unquote. What the hell else would a black, adopted at birth by Mormon cattle ranchers, rock-climbing maniac make of me? What kind of guy brings half a dozen books with him to Alaska, two of them by Oscar Wilde? I was lucky to get stuck with a rebel intellectual for the summer. It could easily have been pretentious dweeb. So before we'd even arrived, Brent had introduced us to the crowd on the bluff. It's a great luxury to have friends who tell your stories for you when you're not around. Everything is more believable that way, and despite the requisite feigned annoyance that your tale has already been told to strangers, it's enjoyable to be set apart from the crowd before even joining it. It was mid-June the night Rob and I arrived in Kenai. There were already probably 40 tents on the bluff, which means about 80 to 100 people waiting for work, waiting for fish. That summer probably, sorry, that number probably doubled by the time the salmon finally started coming in around the beginning of July. A few words about the bluff. The bluff was a big, flat field, maybe 400 yards by 300, overlooking Cook Inlet on the edge of the ugly little strip of Kmart's and fast food joints known as Kenai. I don't know how wide Cook Inlet is at that point, but sitting on the edge of the bluff about 100 yards above the water, I could clearly see the snow-capped volcanoes on the other side. It's a beautiful sight, made even more so by the knowledge that this really was an edge I was sitting on. Across that inlet, there were no roads going from one place to another, no phone lines, no oil wells, no rusting snowmobiles. There were towns scattered along the edge of Bristol Bay, hundreds of miles south, southwest from where I sat, Dillingham, Knack But from my knees outward to those volcanoes and beyond, anything human was the exception. Given the shame and despair I felt about most things human, that sight never failed to move me with wonder and loss, like seeing a virgin before her inevitable rape. We set up our tents a few meters from where the bluff dropped off into the inlet. We all had good tents, being the sort of college boy wilderness techno freaks we were, Brent had the best tent made. It was one of those tents that big-time climbers take to the top of Everest. 
not for the endorsement money, but because they don't want to die up there. It was a geodesic domicile big enough to accommodate four men waiting out a blizzard, and Brent had it all to himself. It got a little unnerving there day after day, waiting for millions of fish out in the Pacific to get together and decide to come spawn in Alaska. We didn't know when the salmon would arrive or if we would have work when they did. Every day brought more hopeful workers, but no work. There was desperation in that clean northern air. So we decided to get drunk. I'd been drunk plenty of times, but there's something special about deciding to get drunk. It's like deciding to do something stupid. I know, it is deciding to do something stupid. There's a certain freedom in having declared it your intention right from the start to overdo it, to go too far. Having made the decision to make an ass of yourself, you're now somehow free from future prosecution. So we declared our guilt at the liquor store by buying four bottles of tequila. I think Three Fingers was the brand for the five of us and then stepped out into the unknown. And for me, unknown it was. As I've recounted elsewhere, I'd had a fair bit of experience with various intoxicants available to the curious with connections, and I considered myself a pretty salted sailor. But not, having, but not being a big drinker, tequila was something new to me. I can find no reasonable justification for the illegality of marijuana or any of the psychedelics, but with tequila, punishment seems redundant. We walked back to the tents by the cliff. There was Brent, Rob, my cellmate in Fairbanks, John, another intellectual rebel who'd hitched from Maine to Alaska without a tent. When I met him, he was sleeping under what looked to be a shower curtain. Some blonde guy with a big knife on his belt whose father was a minister. That's all I remember about him and yours truly. As the sun dragged another glacial sunset across the sky, we got down to some serious drinking. I was surprised and pleased at how easily the Three Fingers was going down when assisted by lime and a little salt. Some people get violent when they drink. Others grow morose and su suspicious. After downing about ten shots in half an hour or so, I started getting pedantic. I had an urgent need to read these guys some great poetry. I just happened to have the selected poems of D.H. Lawrence right there with me. I remember opening the book and beginning to read a poem called Snake, which I had read to a class in college a few months earlier, far, far from where I was then sitting. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. The words, if read collectly, seem to slide like a serpent. They hiss occasionally and lazily. There's a reptilian chill to its movement. But I never finished reading them the poem. Somewhere around the point where Lawrence watches the snake take a delicate drink from a pool somewhere in Greece, I passed out. I'm not sure how my audience reacted to my aborted performance, but the next day I found evidence that they'd continued reading on their own. After collapsing on my book, I was lost in the sort of amniotic awareness that only the truly shit-faced can experience as an adult. There were sporadic sensory data coming in, but they were of no service to me. I felt myself being dragged along the ground and heard my pals talking and laughing. 
I knew I was among friends, so I accepted whatever they was do whatever they were doing as some sort of benevolent assistance. When they put me down, I could feel that my head was hanging strangely, but the thought of opening my eyes to try to see what was going on was far too much to consider. It's a good thing I kept them shut. Hours later, when they'd all gone to sleep and it began to rain lightly, I did open my eyes and saw that my head was hanging off the edge of the cliff, and the reason I couldn't focus was that I was looking at dark waves breaking on rock a hundred yards below me. My buddies apparently had decided that I was at risk of vomiting on myself, so they positioned me in such a way that it wouldn't be a problem. That sounds malicious, but when you consider their next decision, you'll see that this was merely the first of a series of bad moves. After an hour or two of hazy conversation and laughter nearby, I returned to consciousness just enough to understand, in a rudimentary lizardly way that the voices were going on about what a great place this was and what a great time in our lives and so on. I may have managed a drooling smile of agreement, but I'm not sure. Then I heard the minister's son say something about celebrating the occasion by becoming blood brothers. Everyone loved the idea. Everyone capable of expressing an opinion, I should say. After all, a few bottles of two fingers... Oh, sorry. After all, after a few bottles of two fingers, what's any self-respecting adventurer going to say to such a Huck Finn suggestion? My condition, while still decidedly fetal, must have been improving because when I heard the grunts and groans and, oh, hey, that's too much blood and other signs of carnage, I curled myself a little tighter. Then the inevitable happened. Hey, Chris would want to be a blood brother. Yeah. Well, Chris didn't know much at that moment, but he knew he did not want to be a blood brother. In my first voluntary movement since the snake had drank from that pool, I managed to get my hands under my body and hold them there. They could hang me over a cliff, but they wouldn't cut me ha- my hands up. Not my fingers, anyway. After a few minutes, they gave up. A little more disappointed in me, no doubt. The next day, I found the evidence I mentioned earlier. In the D.H. Lawrence book, across the page containing a poem called I Once Loved a Woman, yeah is written in blood, but not mine. I shouldn't neglect to mention what happened after the rain woke me up. I instinctively crawled into the closest tent, which happened to be Brent's Mount Everest special. Unfortunately, I did end up vomiting that night, but not over the edge of the cliff. If Brent ever climbs Mount Everest in that tent, he'll think of me.
And now I'm going to read Snake by D.H. Lawrence. And I'm reading it from the book I had in my hands that night in 1983. If you uh, go to com and look at this episode page, I'll, uh, I'll post some photos, including the blood-spattered page in question. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day, and I, in pajamas for the heat, to drink there. In the deep, strange-scented shade of the great, dark carob tree, I came down the steps with my pitcher and must wait, must stand and wait, for there he was at the trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth wall in the gloom and trailed his yellow-brown slackness soft-bellied down over the edge of the stone trough and rested his throat upon the stone bottom. And where the water had dripped from the tap in a small clearness, he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack, long body, silently. Someone was before me at the water trough, and I, like a second comer, waiting. He lifted his head from his drinking, as cattle do, and looked at me vaguely, as drinking cattle do, and flickered his two-forked tongue from his lips and mused a moment, and stooped and drank a little more. Being earth-brown, earth-golden from the burning bowels of the earth, on the day of Sicilian July with Etna smoking. The voice of my education said to me, he must be killed, for in Sicily the black, black snakes are innocent, the gold are venomous. And voices in me said, if you were a man, you would take a stick and break him now and finish him off. But must I confess how I liked him, how glad I was he had come like a guest in quiet, to drink at my water trough and depart peaceful, pacified, and thankless into the burning bowels of this earth? Was it cowardice that I dared not kill him? Was it perversity that I longed to talk to him? Was it humility to feel so honored? I felt so honored. And yet those voices, if you were not afraid, you would kill him. And truly, I was afraid. I was most afraid. But even so, honored still more that he should seek my hospitality from out the dark door of the secret earth. He drank enough and lifted his head dreamily, as one who is drunken, and flickered his tongue like a forked night on the air, so black, seeming to lick his lips, and looked around like a god, unseeing into the air and slowly turned his head, and slowly, very slowly, as if thrice a dream, proceeded to draw his slow length, curving round and climb again the broken bank of my wall face. And as he put his head into that dreadful hole, and as he slowly drew up, snake easing his shoulders and entered farther, 
a sort of horror, a sort of protest against his withdrawing into that horrid black hole, deliberately going into the blackness, and slowly drawing himself after, overcame me now his back was turned. I looked round, I put down my pitcher, I picked up a clumsy log, and I threw it at the water trough with a clatter. I think I did not hit him, but suddenly... That part of him that was left behind, convulsed in undignified haste, writhed like lightning and was gone into the black hole, the earth-lipped fissure in the wall front, at which, in the intense still noon, I stared with fascination. And immediately I regretted it. I thought, how paltry, how vulgar, what a mean act. I despised myself and the voices of my accursed human education, and I thought of the albatross, and I wished he would come back, my snake. For he seemed to me again like a king, like a king in exile, uncrowned in the underworld, now due to be crowned again. And so I miss my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have something to expiate a pettiness.